1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash So I think like we're, you know, in the second inning of helping regulators understand that because number one, it's a big mind shift to go from centralized to decentralized systems and then to go from totally public systems to, where all information can be accessed, to private systems where you have to trust the cryptography. I think this is like a key here. Rather than trusting an intermediary, we're trusting math. And I think getting regulators to like really understand that is going to be a bit of a leap. I have faith that we're going to get there, there. otherwise, you know, I wouldn't be working in it.
2: Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nexo.io and Circle and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Friday, November 11th. And today we have a breakdown interview with John Wu. But before we get into that, however, if you are enjoying The Breakdown, please go subscribe to it, give it a rating, give it a review. Or if you want to dive deeper into the conversation, come join us on The Breakers Discord. You can find a link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash breakdown pod. All right, folks, today I'm excited to welcome John Wu to the show. John Wu runs growth at Aztec Network. Aztec built itself as the privacy layer for Web3 and is a private by default smart contract platform secured by Ethereum. In this conversation, we discuss zero knowledge proofs, the right to privacy, and why the regulatory discussion of privacy is just beginning. All right, John, welcome to The Breakdown. How are you, sir?
1: Thanks, doing well. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, no, I'm super excited. so the, whenever I do kind of an interview series, there's always inevitably something about privacy and it's always a topic that, people uh, want to hear more about dig deeper into. And so I kind of have my eye to invite you on for, for a while now. I'm glad that we can make it work this time. And, uh, you know, I, I really want to get into kind of, you know, the, the work that you're doing, uh, but also just kind of how it reflects your broader understanding of uh, privacy and its application in crypto. But I think before we start, for people who aren't familiar with, with you and your work, can you give just kind of a, a little background?
1: Yeah, so I'm John Wu, head of growth at Aztec. Aztec Network is a privacy-first ZK roll-up on Ethereum. I've been here for about a year and had a very wide-ranging career before that, did consulting, private equity, business school, real estate, food tech. So I've done it all, fell into crypto uh, down the rabbit hole about 18 months ago, just writing tweets on Twitter. And that's you know, a huge entry point into the space, and here I am, and it's been a fun ride so far.
2: Yeah, I would say a huge number of people more or less got their start writing tweets on Twitter. Certainly, I mean, this show came out of uh, a thing that I did on Twitter called Long Read Sunday, which is now obviously morphed into a different form. So uh, I always love to hear that. So I guess maybe by way of kind of extending the introduction, did you, before you got into this space, did you know you wanted to focus on the privacy aspect of it? Or was that something that you sort of fell into as you explored it more?
1: No, I actually fell into it because my entry point was from DeFi. And in fact, I think it's really hard to fall into crypto privacy first because the default is public blockchains. And so I came from a traditional finance background and I was first obsessed with DeFi and then saw all the trade-offs that we make from having a public blockchain. Um, and that's how I got into it.
2: Interesting. That makes tons of sense. I think we're going to dig deeper into that. But I guess let's start with sort of a, a privacy kind of 101. So your perception of first, why privacy is important. Second, what's broken about privacy right now. And you can take that in the context of crypto slash DeFi specifically, or you can kind of talk more broadly. And then three, maybe is sort of what you think the trade offs are as we currently kind of live within them.
1: Yeah, for sure. A lot there. I mean, I would first say that a lot of people say things like privacy is a human right. And what that means to me is that like privacy is a fundamental building block for a society that works. Like when you record all the things that you expect to be private in a given day, you'll realize that most of the things that you do are private. And so privacy as a human right means to me like the right to your own thoughts, the right to your own intellectual property. What is intellectual property? Something that you created in your own head. Um, But I would say on blockchain, privacy has three primary values in my mind. Number one, privacy as a mode of discretion. Like it's not very comfortable for everyone just to know what you're doing. And we like to say, like, if you you don't care about privacy, then why don't you let people watch you shower? Well, like rationally, there's no like really strong reason, right? It's just like it doesn't feel very comfortable. Um, We know that privacy is really important from a security perspective because if everyone can see what you're doing, they know what you own, they can track your transactions, they can front run you. And then the last thing is privacy is a creative force. Privacy is a mechanism that we use to play a lot of different games. And people don't really like to think of it that way. But let's say you and I uh, you know, have a deck of cards and we wanted to play a game. And one of the uh, requirements was that we had to play only games that were face up. There's a very small universe of games that we can play only with face up cards. Right. And the whole deck is face up. That's basically what public blockchains are today. And so the introduction of privacy isn't just obfuscation of transactions for anonymity's sake or confidentiality's sake. It's also introducing a completely new mechanism for human behavior and coordination
2: two things that I want to follow up on, which are both some combination of either uh, abstract and and rightsy or ridiculous. The first is that I actually really like that you started from the premise of the default state of human thought is private. And one of the core things about being a person in relationships is getting to decide which of those thoughts we reveal to whom and why and when. And I think that it's it's important because one of the things that has kept me in crypto and I think keeps so many people here is the extent to which it becomes a lens to understand uh, these sort of fundamentals of human behavior, human experience. And although the, you know... The practical application of privacy may have nothing to do with that sort of fundamental human truth of sort of the, the starting point of, of you know, our, our thoughts being default private. I, I think that going back to very kind of first principles thinking about this is super, super valuable uh, as we articulate kind of what the rights regime should be, uh, you know, as it's applied. So I, I love that you started there. The second thing, just kind of on the on the game's front, so, you know, regular listeners will know that the, the one game that I love and have always loved is Magic the Gathering. And one of the most powerful effects in Magic is cards that say your opponent reveals their hand, right? Because it gives you this incredible amount of information. And when done right, that reveal can actually create very interesting gameplay, right? But done poorly, it totally warps the game in the favor of the person with the additional information. So I, I think that, that the, the way that you kind of framed it as... Introducing new mechanism for kind of coordination and, and games is actually really interesting as well.
0: Want to keep more profits when trading? Get the best possible prices and trade with 50% lower fees on Nexo Pro. The new Spot and Futures trading platform uses aggregated liquidity of over 3,000 order books collected from multiple sources. Utilizing the complete Nexo suite allows you to earn interest and borrow funds as you wait for the next trade setup. Visit pro.nexo.io. That's pro.nexo.io and sign up today. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the sole issuer of USDC and a leader in crypto that's held to a higher standard. USDC is a fast, safe and efficient way to send money around the globe. So let's talk about
2: the state of play of privacy discussions in crypto, you know, over the last couple of years. And maybe so what I really want to where I want to land is. Uh, zero knowledge and sort of the stuff that you spend a lot of your time on and and how that relates to privacy. But I think it would be helpful for you to kind of give almost the sort of the TLDR historical lineage of how privacy has been kind of thought about in this industry, right? Because if you popped in in 2017, privacy was, you know, Monero and Zcash and stuff. So uh, kind of talk us through the evolution of that over the last few years.
1: Yeah, I think privacy on Ethereum, it's hard to talk about it without mentioning Tornado Cash, which is a very simplistic application of zero knowledge proofs. Um, it's basically a Merkle membership proof, which just says, like, I deposited a note into this tree and then, you know, later I withdrew it and I can furnish some proof, some key that says, like, that note was mine while obfuscating the input and the outputs. And every single attempt at privacy above and beyond that since then, much of which has been pursued by Aztec, is about the generalization of privacy beyond simple obfuscation. And so if you look at what Tornado was, it was like a really, really, really expensive and non-generalized, like very specific single asset way to like transfer ETH. And then the next evolution of that was turning things into a privacy-first ZK roll-up, which we did with the first uh, version of ZK Money, which allowed you to send funds privately with multiple assets. It allowed you to do internal transfers. And immediately you can already see like, okay, money, the usage of money is already becoming more generalized. And that's why like, Aztec's not a mixer, and we don't consider ourselves a purely anonymization service because the whole goal is to generalize privacy and create it, uh, make a, a network that's private by default. And so the next stage after that was we released something called Aztec Connect. Aztec Connect, we like to communicate as the VPN for Ethereum. It allows you to do Ethereum layer one transactions using Aztec as a proxy. So much in the same way an IP replaces your IP with the VPN's IP, we replace your ether scan address with Aztec private rollup. So if you want to do an element vault entry or you want to do a curve swap or you want to uh, stake ETH into Lido, you can do so and Aztec will do it on your behalf. And at the same time, because it's a ZK rollup, save you a bunch of money by batching up that action with a lot of different users. Our future state, which we're building toward in the last couple of weeks um, with the announce of Noir, uh, Noir is our domain specific language that helps uh, application developers write zero knowledge circuits. Aims to be a fully generalizable smart contract platform, meaning it's Ethereum, but with privacy that you can toggle. So imagine if, you know, functions, variables and smart contracts could be toggled public or private, depending on the type of games you want to play. So if you and I, for instance, wanted to make a bet um, about really anything, but let's say it's about the price of Ethereum, like it would be um, a financial derivative. We could place that bet, put the order together, publish it on the blockchain, make sure that it still settles deterministically, but nobody else knows that we've made this agreement. And so that's what we're building toward is a universe where you can use privacy as a mechanism to build interesting new features like private exchanges, gaming with privacy components, um, like you uh, alluded to with Magic the Gathering, and simple things like payments and business contracts, which in the default world, you know, we expect to be private.
2: So super interesting. So I want to put a pin in this, the separation between how an individual transacting with crypto or blockchain applications uh, has more choice around privacy, I want to separate that in our discussion from new applications that can be built with different logic around privacy, because that's fundamentally, that's kind of a different way of looking at this. And I think most of our privacy discussions are on kind of the the former part of that, which is just kind of how does a person experience individual transactional privacy. But before that, I guess, just for our listeners who aren't familiar with the idea of uh, zero knowledge proofs, could you give kind of the, the most basic, you know, maybe analogy, you know, whatever it is that helps people best understand it as you're trying to kind of introduce them to this concept.
1: Yeah, the 101 for zero knowledge proofs is it's a way to prove a secret without revealing it. And you have to kind of chew over that sentence a couple times before you understand how powerful it is. And to maybe give a couple analogies. One is for those who are college age, you know, you're probably very familiar with getting carded at a bar, right? And what are you doing when you get carded at a bar? You're giving someone a license that says your birth date, among other revealing personal identity items on it. And what is the bouncer doing? The bouncer is taking today's year and subtracting it by the date of your birth. And if that uh, resulting number is over 21, then you get let in. And if it's under 21, you don't get let in. What is the problem here, right? What we want to do is we want to prove to somebody that we're 21 without actually having them do the literal math. And so what a zero-knowledge proof allows you to do is it allows you to do that computation essentially without that other person seeing and prove to them with a blob of math that like for sure you're 21 and so what would that look like in practice it would potentially look like somebody scanning a qr code and being like okay i don't know what age you are but this just tells me that you're over 21 or furnishing like a tokenized membership that's like i'm part of the pool of all bargoers that are over 21. and you can see how that's a really powerful way to preserve privacy while also being able to furnish things like attestation and identity And those are some of the things that we're really excited about. As to like maybe an analogy for how a zero knowledge proof might be implemented, one popular example is the Where's Waldo example. So if I were playing a game of Where's Waldo with you and I found Waldo first, let's say I wanted to prove to you that I knew where Waldo was without actually revealing where it is, right? I want to prove to you that I won the game, but it wouldn't be very fun if I pointed to it, right? Because then like I would reveal to you where it was the way you would do this is you would take a really big sheet of paper and just cut out a Waldo size hole in it. And then I would put the book underneath this big piece of paper and I would show you like, here's Waldo, but like, you can see that I know exactly where he is, but because the sheet of paper is so big, it conceals like where on the map he's actually living. That's another example of a situation in which there's a secret, the location of Waldo. I've proven it to you verifiably. You can see that I definitely for sure know. And yet I've hidden from you like a core secret, which is where he actually is.
2: One of the reasons that I think people have been captivated by this sort of approach to privacy as a path forward is that it feels like it potentially resolves some of the key tensions, particularly with regard to government and regulations, right? In the sense that it's a modality of privacy that does not say you are not entitled to the information that you wish to know to fit in with your regime of making sure that I'm not A, a terrorist, or B, you know, laundering this money, while C, not revealing information that gets caught up in the dragnet of, of acquiring that sort of proof. How much is that sort of a fair depiction of, of part of the excitement around this space?
1: That's extremely fair and what we're very excited about. We're seeing a debate over the regulatory regime that requires censoring certain transactions and having even like a block list that's maintained by the U.S. Treasury. I mean, for one, like we know that contradicts some of the core principles of blockchain in general, but I would argue that it's also highly inflexible. If you have a network that only abides by one compliance regime, how about like another compliance regime that disagrees with it? And then you have network participants having to pick and choose between violating one regime or the other. Our belief is that the base network should not be censored whatsoever. And using zero knowledge, things like identity memberships or KYC memberships, if apps choose to adopt them, is a way for applications to determine which jurisdictions rules they want to abide by. And so an example of this is like you can apply the same Merkle membership proof to a KYC attestation, for instance. So let's say I went and I decided, hey, there's a set of compliant DeFi tools, which I'm sure will exist in the coming years as you know, regulation increases our industry. And I want to be able to furnish this notion that like, I have successfully kyc to them without having to reveal my identity. Well, I can do so. I can go to a third-party KYC provider who furnishes me with uh, a KYC token, and then that's portable, and I can take it to each of these providers and be like, hey, you don't know who I am, just like in the bouncer example. You don't know who I am, you don't know my identity, but you do know that I'm KYC'd, you do know that I'm a legitimate user. And it's up to applications to adopt whatever restrictions they want to adopt in order to be compliant. And what's important is the network underlying this is fully programmable, flexible, and credibly neutral.
2: So one of the things that's interesting, I, I spent a lot of time watching the policy and regulation debates. And one thing that I often feel is the privacy folks sort of trying to, you know, fr- almost from the back uh, of the room... Pointing out that there may be technology solutions rather than political solutions or or, or that that beget political solutions in the sense that sort of the the technology is not at an end state where it needs to be kind of determined with some of these questions, but that, in fact, there could be actual technology answers which... uh, are even kind of beyond crypto questions could be different types of regimes for, you know, these the sort of uh, government programs to not infringe so much while still existing. What is your sense of regulators' understanding of some of this? I mean, this is such, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a new field even for people in the crypto space. I guess maybe a different way to put it is, are there regulators who are actually kind of digging in around this? Have you seen any meaningful progress in that area?
1: Yeah, I do think we have to give regulators a little bit of credit here and they're not totally irrational actors, right? Like they're doing some balance of harms calculus where they're like, hmm, we could just ban all of Ethereum, right? We could ban all hosting of Ethereum nodes in the United States. Like they could have easily done that and they decided not to. Why? Because they looked at the Ethereum balance of harms and they're like, okay, some tiny amount of the total activity here is illicit. But then they looked at Tornado and they're like, okay, there's this subset over here where like 40 percent of the use is illicit. And so that's why we think it's really important to have privacy at the base layer. But I'll, I'll just say that like regulators aren't that dumb. It's just that ZKs and the concept of being able to prove something without revealing it is really hard to wrap your mind around. And you know, Aztec, are, we're, we're very, very focused on trying to initiate that conversation with regulators around the technology and what it enables. But the other thing that I will add is that regulators have grown up in a kind of centralized financial economy. And in a centralized financial economy, compliance is very legible, right? Like if you look at the word itself, it has the word comply in it. It implies that there's like a neck to choke, right? I can go to you or I can go to me and I can be like, hey, comply, do the thing that we ask you to do. It's very hard to square that understanding of a regulatory environment with fully decentralized censorship resistant networks. And so I think as a space, what we're trying to do is to say, hey, look, the networks should remain credibly neutral. And the neck to choke actually is the service provider. It's the application developer. It's the like neobank. It's the DeFi protocol that builds on top. So I think like we're, you know, in the second inning of helping regulators understand that because number one, it's a big mind shift to go from centralized to decentralized systems and then to go from totally public systems where all information can be accessed to private systems where you have to trust the cryptography. I think this is like a key here. Rather than trusting an intermediary, we're trusting math. And I think getting regulators to, like, really understand that is going to be a bit of a leap. I have faith that we're going to get there, there. otherwise, you know, I wouldn't be working in it.
2: So obviously, the regulatory dimension of private by default blockchains and sort of privacy services is a key piece. You brought up the tornado cash sanctions. Obviously, that has fundamentally shaped the discourse around how we're thinking about regulations. Had that not happened, I think it would be potentially in a very different place you know, within the industry. Now, I think you could probably argue that the fact that that did happen maybe is going to lead to us better defending certain types of outcomes that might have kind of happened by default or by accident uh, had it not happened. But outside of the regulatory kind of questions, what do you see as other barriers to adoption of some of these new privacy technologies, particularly thinking about user apathy is something that's come up a lot in the past?
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things here. Number one, to the user apathy component, if we're still convincing people to care about privacy in five years, then we've utterly failed as a segment. Because it's very hard to get users to care about privacy unless there's functionality, which is why we think it's so important to create a privacy-first smart contract platform, right? It's very different to say, hey, I'm going to go through all this UX headache in order to adopt a private network versus, oh, actually this private network, which hopefully in a couple of years will just be a network, right? Most smart contract platforms will be privacy-first, ideally. Um, It won't be about adopting necessarily Um, privacy for its own right, but because there are entire services and games that are not available on public blockchains.
2: John, super, super interesting stuff. Uh, This is definitely a a conversation that I could have uh, a lot deeper. So we'll have to have you back. Super excited to keep hearing about what you guys are doing in this space and, uh, and how you're thinking about it. And really appreciate you hanging out today. Thanks for having me. What stands out to me from this conversation is the idea that there may be technology solutions for regulatory compliance issues. When we talk about regulation normally, particularly with areas like AML, KYC, Bank Secrecy Act stuff, we normally just think in terms of political compromises. But what if there were technology answers that would allow users to prove that they were the thing that the government required them to be, i.e. not terrorists, not laundering money, etc., without actually having to give any other personally identifiable information? Now, there are, of course, tons of barriers to this. To hold aside technology entirely, even John expressed how difficult it is to explain ZK rollups to people, and it's his whole job to do so. Still, I think this idea of exploring where technology could solve problems that politics can't easily has a lot of promise. For now, I want to say thanks again to John for being on the show, and to you guys for listening. Until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.